Boy, it's good to see all of you here this morning. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you're here. We're continuing in this series, Celebrate, and uh, today we're going to take a look at uh, the second of the feasts we're exploring in this five-week series. You know, uh, American families are always looking for a, a good way to get away, spend some time off, whether it's a staycation or a vacation. And when we come into the summertime of the year, that includes camping for many families. Annually, some 40 million Americans, or 14% of the U.S. population six years old and older, go camping. But what I've learned is that the definition of camping is a lot different depending on the person. For some, it's spending time in a tent or a rustic cabin nestled in the depths of the middle of nowhere. For others, it involves a plush RV. Featherlight Coaches has produced a coach, the Platinum Plus, which sells for $2.5 million. Uses Inca marble, Italian leather, crystal glasses from Neiman Marcus, and has a built-in garage for an expensive uh, small sports car. I hardly call that camping. I don't know about you all, but it just doesn't, but, but to each his own. Camping has a broad spectrum of concepts. The feast that we're going to talk about this morning grows out of a camping theme. It was an eight-day celebration known as the Feast of Tabernacles. The word tabernacle means tent or portable dwelling. Sometimes it was called the Feast of Booths. See, it's all about camping. It was also known as the Feast of Ingathering because it came at the end of the harvest of vine and Tree And the crops that were produced in Israel at that time were grapes, figs, dates, pomegranates, and olives. Those were major crops, and they were harvested at that time of the year. And since it was the most popular of all of the celebrations, sometimes it was simply called the feast. Now, it was one of the three great feasts that all Jewish males were required to celebrate in Jerusalem. And here's why. Passover, which we're going to take a look at in a couple weeks celebrated the Israelites' departure from Egypt. Pentecost, the one that we celebrated and talked about last week, uh, marked their arrival at Mount Sinai when they received the law. And tabernacles, which required the people to live in these little tents or erected booths for a week, commemorated the 40 years of wandering that the Israelites did during that time in the desert. The Lord spells it out in Leviticus chapter 23, beginning in verse 33. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, On the 15th day of the seventh month, the Lord's Feast of Tabernacles begins, and it lasts for seven days. So beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate this festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of rest, and the eighth day is also a day of rest. On the first day, you are to take choice fruit from the trees and palm fronds, leafy branches and poplars, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Have you noticed how much seven crops up in this again? That's that number over and over. Celebrate this festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in booths for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in booths. So your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in booths when I brought them up out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now the pervading theme of this festival is joy and thanksgiving. 
Do you know that some historians have suggested that our pilgrims that landed at Plymouth used the Feast of Tabernacles as a model for their Thanksgiving celebration that first harvest season in the New World? In Jerusalem, the first and the eighth days involved sacred assemblies, but there was this festive atmosphere that seemed to pervade the whole city of Jerusalem all the rest of the days. In these little tents or portable booths set up all around the area as people came from countries and regions all around to celebrate. I mean, it was good food, it was family, it was friends. There was this giant party feeling to the festival of tabernacles. And they built these temporary shelters with palm branches, willow branches, myrtle branches, and citron branches. The festival contained three very significant elements. One, 70 bulls were sacrificed to point to the fact that someday believers from every nation would celebrate during the reign of the Messiah. And you say, why 70 bulls? Because it was believed at that day and time that there were 70 nations in the world and these sacrifices represented every nation. I love the fact that we had a lot of nations represented on this platform this morning. How exciting, how moving that was for, for at least me, I think for, for all of you as well. This festival, the Feast of Tabernacles, celebrated that the Messiah would, would be there for all of the nations. The second element involved a powerful ceremony with water. Now, by the time of Jesus, this ceremony was celebrated this way. Every morning of the feast... The appointed priest would leave the temple, which was at the high point of the city of Jerusalem, make his way a quarter of a mile down the road to the pool of Siloam. He would take a golden pitcher and dip it into the cool, clear water of the pool and walk back up, enter into the temple to the sound and the blast of silver trumpets. And he also would enter to the sound of worshipers quoting scripture. Scripture like Isaiah 12, 3, with joy. You will draw water from the wells of salvation. As the priest approached the sacrificial altar, the great altar there in the temple, he was handed a container of wine. And so he walked with a pitcher of water in one hand and a glass or a container of wine in the other. And when he reached the great altar, he poured out of the gold pitcher and out of the chalice into two silver bowls that hung above the altar. There were, throughout the ceremony, hymns being sung, prayers being prayed, much like the one recorded in Psalm 118.25. Oh, Lord, save us. Oh, Lord, grant us success. And you say, so what's with the water thing? How come the water? Oh, the water symbolized a lot of great things. First, it symbolized prayer for the coming winter, winter rains that would help prepare the soil for the new plantings come spring. Secondly, it was a reminder of once again what God had provided for the nation of Israel during the wilderness wanderings, this 40 years in the desert. Now, folks, what's the first thing that comes to your mind if you think of spending time in a desert? What's going to be the thing you're going to want more than anything to make sure that it is present in this time in the desert? What's water? When you think of being stranded in the desert, your, first, your mind first goes to, I'm going to need water to survive this. On more than one occasion, God miraculously provided water for the Israelites. Twice, he, he brought it from the rock. Where's the last place you'd go to find water but a rock? 
It was God's fingerprint on the miracle, letting his people know that the most impossible place to find water is where I'm going to give you water so that you know that I am with you. But why this water from the pool of Siloam, a quarter of a mile down the hill from the temple? Well, in the mind of the Jewish worshipers, this water wasn't just any water. It had come from a spring just east of Jerusalem called the Spring of Gihon. This was the spring that Hezekiah redirected into the city of Jerusalem by a conduit that became known as Hezekiah's Tunnel that saved the city. The spring of Gihon flowed into the pool of Siloam. And in ancient times, this was known as Messiah's Pool. The word Siloam means one who is sent. It's our word for missionary today. One who is sent. But the picture was that of the Messiah, one who would be sent from God to save the nations of the world. No wonder it was to this pool that Jesus sent the blind man after making mud in the ground and putting it on his eyes. He said, now go wash in the pool, Messiah's pool. And when he washed, he could see. The pool of Siloam was believed to be the water in which kings were anointed for Israel. So symbolically, it was viewed as the water which was the outpouring of God's power and spirit. And they remembered God's provision of water from the rock in the past. They looked forward to God's provision in the future when God's spirit would be poured out upon all mankind through the Messiah, the very rock of ages himself. Now, the third part of the feast that was unique uh, was what happened in the evenings from the second night onward. Four giant lampstands were erected in the very center of the temple courts. These, these raised up 75 feet high. Now, remember, this is on the high point of Jerusalem. So you have another 75 feet, and there were huge bowls, four of them, on each one of these pillars that were lighted at night. Plus, the people who had come brought torches and surrounded the temple. Plus, all of the booths and the tents that were erected in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas all had campfires. The whole city was awash with light. And people said of that day and time who wrote, they said, if you've never seen the city at night in the Feast of Tabernacles, you've never witnessed the majesty of the glory of God. It was simply astounding, an incredible scene. Now, this whole concept of a tabernacle, a, a, a dwelling, a, a temporary dwelling, is scattered throughout the Bible. And, and what we oftentimes forget is that there are five tabernacles in which God is represented throughout the scriptures. I, I, I want you to realize this. And the first one is simply the tabernacle that, that God called Moses to build. The one that was this majestic tent that was built in the midst of the Israelites whenever they camped in the wilderness. It was in this tent that God filled it with the brilliance of his own glory. And when the tabernacle moved on, and the people followed behind the Ark of the Covenant as they went through the wilderness to their next place of encampment. The Bible says that every day God provided manna for them. That their sandals never wore out for 40 years. Now, if you like shoes, this is not a happy thought. Okay? But, but their, their sandals lasted throughout the whole time. Their clothing lasted 
As a matter of fact, the Bible says that they did not have illnesses or sicknesses during those 40 years. That God took care of them. It was his tabernacle with the people. He said, I will be with you. I will take care of you during this 40 years. The second tabernacle is the tabernacle of David. Generations later, long after the original tabernacle was gone, but before the temple was built, the Ark of the Covenant that, did not, that represented the presence of God had no place to be lodged. And so David erected a tent where the Ark of the Covenant could be stored and he surrounded it with praise and worship 24-7. And the Bible says that the glory of God filled that tabernacle too. The third tabernacle is Jesus. I love that passage that begins in John chapter 1 and in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. When you go down to verse 14, this is what it says. And the word became flesh. And, and the next part, we usually translate dwelled. But the word is actually tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory. In other words, Jesus came as the earthly house in which the spirit of God lived and made himself known to his people. Jesus is this earthly tabernacle through whom we find our eternal life. Which brings us to the fourth tabernacle. And that is the eternal tabernacle. The older I grow, the more precious <clears throat> Revelation chapter 21 becomes. John, seeing through that vision, writes, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, a beautiful like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard the voice of God saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. Now, now, now look in verses 3 and 4. This is what we read. Now the tabernacle of God is with men and he will live with them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. What is going to be there? The tabernacle of God. We are headed home to the eternal tabernacle where God fills it with his glory. The fifth tabernacle. You ready for this? Is the church. Paul, in the book of Acts, quotes from Amos 9, where prophetically the church is described as restoring David's fallen tent, David's fallen tabernacle. God intends us, the church, to be the place where God's glory is found today, where people can sense his joy, where people can be thankful for what God has done for us. Now, don't tell me that the church is unimportant that the church is insignificant, that knowing Jesus counts, but the church doesn't count because we are his tabernacle. God dwells in us, his people, until he calls the church home. All five of these tabernacles have one thing in common. The light of the glory of God filled them all, and that's what the Feast of Tabernacles celebrated. Now, stay with me. Let's shift gears for a minute. Six months before his death, Jesus celebrated his last Feast of Tabernacles. John writes about this, and John tells us that his birth brothers, his earthly brothers, not his spiritual brothers, his earthly physical brothers, sort of mockingly, tauntingly said, hey, Jesus, why don't you go down to the Feast of Tabernacles and do some of your miracles down there so the people can see you there? Jesus sort of put them off, but he went in disguise. So for the first three or four days of the feast, Jesus celebrates as just an average worshiper. Halfway through the feast, John says, 
he removed his disguise and began to teach. And what happened at that last feast, six months before his death, becomes a polarizing moment in time. John records for us in chapter 7 and 8 of his gospel uh, that on the last and greatest day of the feast, the eighth day, a greater crowd than ever would have assembled as the priest leaves in that morning from the temple to go down to the pool of Siloam with the gold pitcher and to bring the water back. And he enters in with the water and there's a quiet hush that falls across this group of people in the courtyard of the temple as they watch the priest walk up the ramp to the great altar and pour out of that golden pitcher into the silver bowl so that the only sound you could hear at that moment was the water coming out of the pitcher into the bowl. And John said that Jesus spoke with a loud voice. The words ringing, bouncing off the limestone walls of the temple. And this is what he says. In that hushed moment, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from him. Oh, what a moment. The living water speaks. No wonder John writes that some wanted to seize him right there on the spot and kill him. The line had been drawn in the sand. Jesus was saying, I'm the fulfillment of this day and feast. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the one who will bless every nation of the world. I am the water from the rock, the sweetened water from the bitter pool. I am the one who can give you everlasting life. I am the Messiah. And there were those that day who, when he spoke, found their greatest joy. But Jesus wasn't done. Perhaps that evening at the light show or early the next morning while the lamp still burned, Jesus declared once again, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Again, the people were overwhelmed with joy, but the Pharisees, they were just incensed at what he had said. They knew what he meant. And so they began to argue with him, and the conversation finally concluded when they said, you can't be greater than our ancestor Abraham. You can't be the Messiah. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. What was the name that God gave to Moses to say, this is my name? I am who I am. Jesus said to that crowd, before Abraham was, I am who I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Folks, do you understand the magnitude of what Jesus said here? We gloss over these words so quickly without realizing the context in which they were spoken and delivered. This was a dividing line for all of history. Jesus said, this whole party is about me and what I've come to do. This feast, this water, this light, this celebration, this joy, this is who I am. And if you want joy, you'll only find it in me. There were some who turned to him and found the joy of a lifetime. There were others who turned away from him, bitter because he didn't fit their image of what a Messiah should be. They just didn't want his kind to be their savior. 
2,000 years have changed little. Jesus came for all people. All the nations of the world have been blessed through him. Some find their joy in him as was evidenced by those who sang this morning. Could you, could you not sense joy on this platform as, as everybody sang? I, I, I loved it when our African brothers and sisters stood up and they sang with all their heart. I loved it because it was coming from hearts that were joyful with Jesus Christ. I watched what was done in worship here this morning and uh, uh, Brad and I were talking earlier and uh, we both feel like pieces of cardboard compared to how this came out up here. Just, just magnificent in their praise and joy before the Lord. But others turn away from him today. Some people just look at Jesus and say, that's not the kind of savior I want. But folks, we dare not make God in our image. We can only come to him just as he is and just as we are. We come on his terms, not our terms. Most parents <clears throat> that I know are really pretty careful about their kids having too much sugar before a meal. They know that it will spoil their appetites. Kids don't get that. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to like the kids. They think if it tastes good, it should be good for you. That's kind of hard to argue with, isn't it? If it tastes really good, it ought to be good for you. But, but others tell us not so much. Um, if you have a sweet tooth, uh, you know it's hard to turn down those sugar treats. I've got more than one sweet tooth. I've got sweet teeth. All right? <laughs> and, uh, and so it, when, I, when I look at the oh, boy, that, that, that's good stuff. Now, my dear wife is not so enamored with the sweets. She is really good at control when it comes to that. As a matter of fact, every summer we grow some of these cherry tomatoes, those little small tomatoes. Elsa, you eat them, and, and then she'll tell me, she said, these taste like candy. Now, I don't know what candy's like to you, <laughs> but I'm here to tell you, those tomatoes are not like candy to me. We have two different definitions of what candy is like. But this, this I do know this morning. Sugar gives you a buzz and makes you, well... It masks your need for genuine, healthy nutrition. It's true. Kids don't eat as well after they eat candy or sweets because the candy tricks their brain. The unhealthy things of this world are like a sugar high. They deceive our minds and our souls. The hidden longing for an affair sounds sweet, but it will never satisfy it will only bring great guilt. There are lots of more sugar highs. The empty confidence that I won't get caught cheating in this business deal. Or the self-deception that I can stop taking those drugs anytime I want to. Or the ludicrous thought that since I'm generally better than most people that I know, God's going to accept me on that basis. I really don't need a savior. You see, the sugar highs of this world mask our true spiritual appetites and keep us from discovering lasting joy. The quest for power, wealth, and fame leaves us hungry without realizing that we're hungry for the right stuff. It's not hard to spot the people with true joy. It's not hard to spot the people with empty happiness either. The great Oswald Chambers wrote this. He said, the Bible nowhere speaks about a happy Christian it talks plentifully of joy. Happiness depends on things that happen and may sometimes be an insult. Joyfulness is never touched by external conditions and a joyful heart is never an insult. Well, you say, I don't know if Jesus can really make that kind of a difference in my life or not. 
I can't answer that for you. You'll have to wrestle with that question on your own. But I do know this. I do know this. Without light, I cannot see. A baby, an infant, if it were shut up in like the darkness of a cave, before the brain had a chance to develop, would have severe eye problems and probably blindness. Without light, I cannot see. Without water, I will die in a few days. I do not take the words of Jesus lightly or casually when he says, I am the light of the world. I am the living water. He is saying to all of us, that there is life in him and him alone. That if I want true joy, lasting joy, eternal joy, I will only find that joy in him. Apart from the light of the world and the living water, I won't survive. Nick Vujicic was born without arms or legs, and yet he surfs, has gone skydiving, is married, is a father, fights for injustice, and shares about his faith in Christ throughout the world. You can go online and you can listen to some of his testimonies, his preaching about Jesus. Now, I can't, I can't begin to imagine the challenges that he has to address continuously. No arms, no legs. I, it's just not in my scope of understanding. And yet his disabilities have never destroyed his contentment, have never robbed him of his joy. He lives with the contentment, but he leaves an open door for a miracle, he says. <laughs> he said, a man without legs has no need for shoes, and yet he has a pair anyway, just in case a miracle comes his way. Don't you like that? He explains, I keep a pair of shoes in my closet because I believe in miracles. And then he adds this, but there is no greater miracle than seeing someone come to God. Nick further states, if a miracle doesn't come, you can still be a light shining on earth for others. Do you know why Nick can be joyful without arms and legs? It's because he knows the joy of finding the light of the world and the living water has filled him with a contentment that is greater than anything that has happened to him. I'm telling you this morning, if you want joy, you can have it. Great joy, lasting joy that will get you through life's most difficult times, but you'll only find it. You'll only find that joy in the living water and the light of the world. And that's what it means when he tabernacles in our heart.